hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. Hello and welcome back to The Conversation. This is our spring 2023 series and this is going to be known forever as the Moonlight Chicken episode. We're going to spend the next however long talking about nothing else because this show deserved a whole damn episode. However long. We don't know how long we're going to be here. We, we, we don't, have a lot we don't of things know. to say. We don't know how long this is going to be. We'll figure that out when we're editing. Ben, tell the people about Moonlight Chicken. What is it about? It's about how off is the best. Okay, so Moonlight Chicken caps off the Midnight series from GMMTV, which is this project that they did in collaboration with Disney through their Disney Plus Hotstar thing that they have in Asia. The three different Midnight series focus on the lives of poor people, people whose lives aren't often lauded in the types of stories that make it onto traditional television because they're not as aspirational as television tends to be. And then when we get to Moonlight Chicken, Alf ends up telling a gay-found family drama with all of the romantic complications that come with being an actual queer person. And this falls out this way. Our primary character that we care about is Jim, played by Earth Pirapat, who runs a diner at night that makes chicken rice. And his thing is, after midnight, you can eat as much as you want. And we get this beautiful opening shot where we see that he has one employee who's worked here a long time named Selang, who's a younger than him and then his nephew works here as well who's played by fourth netawat their relationship seems a little tense when we first get here and then there's the local chicken monger's son who comes by who's played by kaltung tenawat a drunk patron ends up passing out in the diner and he has to wake him up and it ends up being Wen, who's played by nick sahab They have instant chemistry between them. They have one of the sexiest walks through the streets of Patea that we've maybe ever seen before having a one-night stand, or at least what Jim thought was a one-night stand. Wen decides that it's going to be more, and from there, most of the complications of the show fall out, which involve Jim navigating this new potential romance with a new person, the angst that's going on with his nephew who's coming of age and resisting the pressures of his elders telling him what to do. Selang dealing with his girlfriend becoming pregnant and Gaipa, Kaotung's character, dealing with the 
realities that the man who he adores is not going to love him back. Which all eventually falls out into this incredibly gentle experience with a found family that ends up uplifting each other and giving them all what they need to live the lives they all want to live. That is a brilliant summation, as usual. My description of Moonlight Chicken, it's a family drama about four kinds of loves. First love, last love, unrequited love, and lost love. That's correct, too. And it is so beautiful. It haunts me. We're recording our spring season earlier than we had intended. And one of the reasons that we are doing that is because I absolutely had to talk about Moonlight Chicken before I went crazy. So I'm really hoping this helps because I am dealing with some intense emotional hangover right now. I don't think I've had this few shows I've been watching since like 2019. Normally I have like eight to 18 shows I'm watching at a time. I am really at like three right now. Coming from the man who watched 90 something BLs last year, that is wow. I think that this year we're going to meet in the middle because last year I watched like 15, you watched 90 something. I think this year, based on what I'm seeing coming down the pipe, we're probably going to settle in somewhere about 50 and I might watch most of those. Shockingly. That's a big deal for you, though. I know, but I mean, the winter was... I'm only going to watch 50 shows? Is something wrong? (laughs) The winter was so good to us. We watched quite a bit. Ben gave you the excellent synopsis. I gave you the Cliff's Notes version. And let's just dive into the things that we loved about this show. The first thing that I love about this show is that it is so pretty. It is so... <laughs> I know, I know. I just couldn't. I had to just get that off my chest. This show is gorgeous. The way that it is shot, the cinematography, yes, but also the direction. I have spoken before about Alf being a workman-like director, somebody who prefers to focus on his actors than his photography. He usually will work with somebody who will get the photography done in a very efficient sort of way. But Alf is not really somebody with a flourish to his directorial style from a visual perspective, from what we've seen that he's done so far. This show, because the show is being acted by an all-star cast, and when I say all-star, I mean everybody is an A+, and everybody is firing on all cylinders. So in terms of the work that Alf usually does in the director's show, which is a lot of character work and teasing out the emotions from his actors that he needs, he doesn't have to do any of that because his actors are so good in this one. So he can actually focus a lot more on the style of the piece than he would normally do because he doesn't have to spend a lot of his energy pulling things out of his actors. He is putting that energy into style and 
it's paying dividends. It's paying so many dividends in this show because this show is just gorgeous. It's so stylish. It's so beautiful to watch. Alf before this has basically been adapting other people's work and then reconciling their vision with the needs of the screen. This is an original piece from Alf and his friends. And I am so thankful for that. You can feel so much of his own sense of himself as a queer person, his vision as a queer creator, and the homage he wants to play to other creators and directors along the way. There is so much Wong Kar Wai all over this production. You can feel his love for that style, even though he references the what's the what's the movie? Comrades. Even though he references that film, I could feel Wong Kar Wai, like homage to him all over this, particularly in the alley scenes we saw in the first episode. It's just such a relief that GMMTV is starting to take these risks. Like we didn't necessarily enjoy Never Let Me Go, but I like that it was original. I like that they took the risk on making something that they have full control over, as opposed to having to reconcile fan expectations from what was written in it's not always great. No tea, no shade against some of the writers because writers get better, but a lot of the books they get adapted are some of their earlier works and they've grown as writers since then. So I'm really excited that at this point in his career, they let off do something that he wanted to do. And it's just so incredible. It's really just intense and that thing you said just now about off doing something that he really wanted to do it shows in some very particular ways Alf I think is a person and this is a a lens that you view all his work with as you go through you realize that Alf is a person who believes in radical compassion if you go through Alf's oeuvre he is always really gentle with his characters, especially the flawed ones. He is very compassionate. His work is very compassionate. And one of the things that comes across really strongly in Moonlight Chicken, and we talked about this as well, there isn't really a villain anywhere in the piece. It is all about flawed people who make mistakes, but the narrative treats them really gently and says, look, you made a mistake but you can repair this mistake or maybe you can't and you just have to live with it. But it doesn't shide or berate its characters for having made mistakes. And I really like that. That is a running theme through Alf's work. It shows up so much here because there are characters that could have been villainized. There are characters that could have been treated a lot more harshly by the narrative than they like were. that grandfather in He's Coming to Me? Ooh, yes. Radical compassion is the only reason that strangulation didn't happen. The show, for all that it rings you out, and it does ring you out, it is an incredibly emotional show. It isn't cruel. It isn't harsh. It feels real and lived in. It feels like a warm hug from somebody who loves you no matter what. I really, really respond to that sense of compassion in Alf's work. And that's because as I get older, 
I believe more and more in giving yourself and the people around you and the people in the world with you in giving them grace and in trying to see people's intentions in the things that they do and trying to treat them more gently when they make mistakes because that's how I want to be treated when I make mistakes. As I get older, that's something that's more and more important to me. And so feeling that come through Alf's work really makes it resonate with me in a particular way in this stage of my life. And I really, really respond to his work because of that. I guess let's walk through like the beats that we experience over the course of this show. So we first meet these characters and we can see that so many of them are really stuck in the beginning. Jim is stuck trying to maintain this version of his life that he had with his ex that we learn about. Li Ming is stuck because Li Ming is a teenager who wants to leave. He wants to go see the world. It's kind of surprising that BL characters don't want this that often because most teenagers want to leave. They want to go see other shit than the places that they grew up in. Guy Pa is stuck. He loves an older man who respects his feelings, but very clearly does not return them. Salang is stuck because even though he and Jim get along, there's really not room for advancement in Jim's chicken diner. And he's that cousin who's kind of a screw-up who ends up getting his girlfriend pregnant. As we come to meet more characters, we realize that Alan is also stuck because when broke up with him, but hasn't really left him. They haven't had a clean break. So he keeps holding out hope that this five-year relationship he's been in is going to hold together. And then so much of the show is about these characters unsticking themselves. Li Ming ends up befriending Hart, and that helps him find his own voice more because he's trying to make sure that Hart's voice is heard as well. Jim has to learn to accept that his nephew is coming of age and can make his own choices. Even if he's scared for his nephew, he has to let his nephew make those choices. And he has to let go of his own feelings. Wen has to let go of Alan. He can't half-ass it. He can't be scared with half a foot in either door, like half a foot in Alan's door in case things don't work with Jim, half a foot in Jim's door because he wants to leave Alan. I really like that Wynn has to grow up. Hart is stuck, literally stuck. He's trapped inside of his house. And one friend helps him gain the confidence to be like, no, I want more for my life than to just be a dog that gets left at home while you're at work all day. The boy was suffering. That's why he was driven to drinking. You made the comment about first love, last love, unrequited love, and lost love. And there's so much lost love all over this. Jim loses the love he had with Beam when he feels betrayed by him because Beam secretly has a future wife on the side. He's never going to get to make that right with Beam because Beam dies in a ferry boat accident. You also have the real sadness of when and Alan falling out of love, more specifically when falling out of love with Alan, and Alan having to just accept that. You have to accept that the person you loved no longer loves you. Like 
I think that that's super compelling and really worth exploring. And on the flip side of that, you've got The Last Love. I think you are probably the most correct when we talk about why is Jim reticent when it comes to when. It's because he is 38. He's nearing 40. He legitimately does not believe that he has it in him to love one more person. And so if it's going to be when, this is going to be it, which is why he's so careful about it. He's not playing the field anymore. This is it. Either it's going to be when or he's going to be alone. He basically only has one more great love left in him. At least that's how he feels. And he wants to be careful about that. Hart and Li Ming are off to a really great start. But I really feel like that great start is only possible because of the way that Jim has loved Li Ming and how Li Ming has processed his understanding of love from Jim. Li Ming does not rush into his feelings for Hart. And I feel like a big part of that might be because of the way he sees his uncle being so careful with Wynn. Like, he knows they like each other. It's obvious. And so I think Li Ming is instinctively careful about love. And we see that in the way he treats Hart. Like, everybody's written so many posts about how great Li Ming is. And he really is. But we have to put that in the intergenerational context about why Li Ming is such a good boy. Li Ming is a kind, stubborn, and thoughtful boy because of his uncle. His uncle is so gracious to the neighborhood that he lives in. He donates what little he has to the local temple when they need help. He takes care of all of his neighbors. He treats people with the utmost respect. He's incredibly considerate. When Selang and Preo were staring down an unexpected pregnancy, Jim stopped paying for his car insurance to make sure that Selang could present a dowry to Prail's family. That's the man who raised Li Ming. And so Li Ming, even though he recognizes his feelings for heart, is careful about it. He's not going to rush in. It's why their relationship unfolds in such a beautiful and gentle way, because he's learned from his uncle that love is special and needs to be nurtured, not just snatched. And I think that's reinforced by the type of person that his uncle finally connected with and when. Wen doesn't tell Li Ming to do anything. Ask Li Ming what he wants to do and ask Li Ming to consider the consequences of his choices and to make reasonable plans for about how he would want to do things. He's a great listener. For me, the most special aspect of Moonlight Chicken is that there's really only one I love you said in the whole show. I mean, it's done three times, but it's only between Li Ming and Jim. This show is about how gay men across different age brackets and experiences care for each other. Jim is older and poorer and has experienced the worst forms of homophobia. Alan and Gaipa and Wen are all younger than Jim, not by a whole lot, maybe about eight to ten odd years, but all of them are wealthier than Jim and feel like 
they've been relatively isolated from the worst aspects of homophobia. They're aware of it, but they haven't had their livelihood snatched from them by their dead partner's family. And then you've got Li Ming and Hart, who are completely untouched by those things. They don't even occur to them. That's the mission. That's the work. You touched on something there. Generational storytelling is so important to the show. It's the center of everything. It is, as you rightly pointed out, about three queer men at different stages of their lives and the interaction that they have because of their sexuality, because of their relationships to each other, because of the class differences. Probably the biggest difference between Jim and Wen more than their ages is also the fact that Jim is a poor guy from one of the poorest parts of Thailand. And Wen is a at least middle class Bangkok kid. That plays out in the way that they see the world. I feel equally alongside their generational difference. I think the two are intertwined. It's fascinating. And then here comes Li Meng, who was born in Isan, where Jim is from, but has been raised in his formative years in Pattaya, which is where they live now. Yes, Jim is poor, and by extension, Li Meng is poor. But he's a completely different age than Gen Z kids, man. I love them so much. He's living in a completely different world. And He's in a place like Pattaya, which while it is not Bangkok, it's also not Isan. So it's the stew of age and class that's just so fascinating. And the fact that these three characters are from three different generations is so crucial to the storytelling and how their relationships play out. When kind of has to sit between Jim and Li Ming and translate them back and forth for each other, but also becomes the person in the middle that encourages them to talk to each other instead of talking at each other and past each other, and also points out to them a lot how alike the two of them are, which they are so alike, which is one of the reasons they fight all the time, because they are so alike. They're just so alike at different ages, having been through different It's true. They're both really stubborn They're both really principled. They both have a really strong sense of justice. So much of Jim's whole, like, don't mess with these people, they have more power than us, makes so much more sense after the funeral because Jim has had everything literally snatched from him. It's not a hypothetical. Lee Ming hasn't had to stare that down. That's the big difference between the two of them. But they're both so righteous in so many different ways and it's why they really struggle and it's why their reconciliation is so important to me where jim says like you know your life could have maybe been easier if you lived somewhere else and he says no this was the right place for me to be Mm -hmm. staying with you is the best he gets in his feelings but he says the things that need to be said He says it twice, like after the funeral, he's talking honestly about how he feels uncertain about his mom and he feels uncomfortable about her sudden reappearance in his life. And he's like, I don't know if I love her, but I know I love you. Or later when he says, thank you for everything, Uncle Jim, and I love you. You're talking about all the things that Lee Meng gets from Jim because Jim is the one who raised him. 
one of the things that Lee Ming gets, which he actually extends to his relationship with Hart and the way that he treats with Hart, is that Lee Ming understands community and the importance of community. And that is something that he got from Jim. Jim understands community in like a very instinctive way, and he passes that on to Lee Ming. And you see Li Ming engage with that in his own way. And the way that he engages with that is that he finds community for heart. He understands that heart needs, he needs a village. Heart's isolation has come from him becoming deaf, exacerbated by the way that his parents have treated with him becoming deaf. Li Ming sees that heart needs community and he goes out of his way to give it to him not just by bringing him into the community that he already has in Pattaya with Jim and everything else, although he does do that, but he specifically finds community who will understand him in a way that he knows that he can't ever understand him. Because Hart is deaf, he needs deaf community. And Li Ming finds deaf community as a starting point for Hart to be like, okay, maybe this might not be it, but maybe from this I can find something else. It feels like a little thing, but it also feels like a massive thing. And that comes from Jim, that inherent understanding of the need for community. Because Jim's built it. He's built it all around himself. And Li Ming has seen that. He's lived that. He is part of that. The community that Jim has built around himself. We'll come back to the mushy stuff in a bit. Let's talk about the hot stuff. Let's talk about the chemistry that we got to see from so many different unexpected pairings in this show. Who listen... Everybody's going on and on about, oh, this is why they should let all the boys work with each other. And yes, I completely agree. I totally and utterly agree. But I want to start by talking about Earth and Mix. And Mixes, I'm going to drop my F-bomb here. I'm taking it out of whatever other episode we've recorded it in. <laughs> mixes, mixes fucking fuck me eyes. Every time Wen looks at Jim. It is... Like, so insane the way Mix looks at Earth like he wants to climb him constantly. I gotta say this. As a Thousand Stars fan who cannot rewatch it because it's so frustrating, it was so correct of them to start with a one-night stand. We at least got to release that bit of tension. And it was actually very clever of off. To decide, we're going to shoot this without any mouth-to-mouth kissing. Such a great choice. The tension between them isn't hypothetical, because we know that they want to do it. It's not like a, we believe they want to do it. We know they want to do it. Because they done done it. But they're not for totally valid reasons. It makes the sniff kiss in episode 7 that much more satisfying. And it means when they finally kiss in episode eight you can feel the yes yes i'm home energy of it that is not tied up with the they're finally fucking energy i just love the way that their energy has peaks and valleys throughout the show 
because of the one night stand, their chemistry and their interpersonal energy starts out really high. And I always go back to the whole sequence of the night they met, but specifically there's a scene in that sequence where they're walking through the alley and there is a specific look that one gives Jim right before he just plonks his head onto his shoulder. Mm -hmm. How do I even describe this look? Mix is just the most seductive person at GM. You really, really, really believe when they hit that alleyway and one just starts touching on Jim. Every chance he gets, he puts his head on his shoulder. He brushes his hand past his. You feel this energy like, I need to touch you or I'm going to go insane. I like their energy because they feel so gay. So many of the the BL boys we get, they are new to sexual attraction. (laughs) Jim and Wen clearly are used to having sex with other men. There is a very, very strong sense of familiarity when it comes to male-male intimacy and attraction in their dynamic. You can see them maybe pulling from the plays that they had with their former partners and trying to reconcile some of that along the way. But it's just so refreshing to see two gay men who aren't like, I've never been with anyone before. I don't know how any of this works. It's like, they oh, they know. <laughs> don't worry. There's not going to be any fumbling in the dark here. These are two people who know what they're doing and they want to do it to each other. First and mix. Ooh. You want me to go first or you want to go first? Oh, I'm going first for damn sure. We get a scene at the beginning of episode five, which is a flashback scene to the good times in one and Alan's relationship. So in this instance, it was their first anniversary. The lived-in-ness of their intimacy, not just the sexual attraction part of it, but the general intimacy that the two of them have, the couple play that they're using. I would like to see a first and mixed show. I would really like to see what that looks like because I bought it a hundred percent. Then when it does turn sexual at the end of the scene, man, I was so mad that they left us at the bedroom door for that one. That comes from two actors. Mix has those lethal eyes and that whole demeanor and first is insane. Just insane. That man could have chemistry with a rock. Let me hear you, Ben. Let me hear you. What I think is really impressive about what First and Mix do with those two is make us believe that they had been together for five years and that it soured. I like that we got to see that things that were cute early on just stopped being cute for when. Like Alan's tendency to double speak and be a little bit sarcastic. His very particular nature about certain things 
even the kind of the way he likes to keep mementos. Like you can see the things that started off cute and stopped being cute with so little time. They make us believe that these two genuinely enjoy each other. And also they genuinely broke as a couple. They say some really ugly things to each other. Telling the person who you exchange rings with, I don't love you anymore, as you point at them and poke them in the chest, that's already intense for Westerners, but Thai people do not like pointing at each other. That's one of the rudest things you can do in Thailand. So that stood out to me especially because that was him being as mean as I think he could muster in that moment. It's the kind of pain you can only inflict on someone that you've been that close to. And it really hurts me because you can see how much Alan loved when I feel for Alan because I'm the quiet, diligent type who tries to secure my finances to make sure that I can be alive decades from now. And Alan is a banker. He clearly worked hard to make sure that he and Wynn were going to be secure for the future. He seems to take his role of primary income very seriously for making sure that they're okay. And it's so painful to see Alan basically be told, yeah, everything you built, I don't care about that. I don't want any of that. I'm going to go be with the poor guy because he fucks better than you, which is basically what Alan felt, which is why I think he asked about whether or not they'd had sex, because clearly sex must have been one of their issues on the way out. That comes specifically from something that happened in that same argument. And I think that's something that stuck with Alan as well. You talk about how mean one was to him in that argument. And one of the things that one said to him was that we're broken up and you're still trying to have sex with me. And Alan was like, yeah, you're acting like you weren't there too. And then one says, I did it because I felt sorry for you. That is soul destroying. God. And you're sharing the same bed with him. You still have the ring. That is a soul destroying thing to say to somebody. And it would stick with Alan so that when he sees one with this other guy, that's the first thing he immediately goes to because that thing that one said about sleeping with him because he felt sorry for him is stuck in his head now. So in his head, sex had to be part of the problem. The layers of the Alan one relationship. I love that one is wrong in the way that he deals with Alan. It's true. And I don't think we've acknowledged that a lot as a fandom and all the things we talk about. It's not wrong for when to just stop loving alan he doesn't have control over how he feels but it is cruel to break up with the man keep the promise rings share the bed with him let him continue to provide for you and then run around the city trying to find someone else to be with while keeping him on a leash making him think you just need to get something else out of your system Alan is waiting for you to come home to him that he built for you. I like that one is allowed to be wrong and that doesn't make him a villain. Again, going back to that radical compassion, which the show treats its characters 
one apologizes to Alan, he realizes that he has been wrong and he has been cruel to Alan. And he expresses that part of that cruelty comes from a part where he also didn't know what to do because he also hoped somewhere deep inside of him that maybe they could get it back. Alan probably doesn't want to hear that, but it's real. It's so real. And it's why he gets hurt because there's a huge level of despair that hits him. Gwen may have spent a great deal of time deciding he didn't want to be in this anymore, but Alan wanted things to work. First and Mix are just so convincing as two people who used to be way more to each other. And it's why I'm so relieved that at the end of this, the two of them can extend this grace to each other and share this community together. We got to talk about Earth and Papang, man. Let's talk about Papang! We have got to talk about Earth and Papang. So Papang plays Beam, who is... Jim's, this is, yeah, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> this is Jim's dead ex-husband. Let's just be real. That's what he is, right? He's Jim's dead as ex-husband. As far as what Beam clearly wanted Jim to think of them as, they were partners. In engaging in some of that radical compassion that I've been talking about, I have been trying to view Beam in a different light from the way that I have been viewing him since I watched the show. So I have been trying to see. She's having a harder time with this than me. I am having a very hard time with it. I think it's also something that's a little personal to me, which is why I'm having a hard time with it. But I am trying. One of the things that you said to me that I'm really trying to cling on to and hold on to, knowing that Alf doesn't tend to put villains in his dramas, is that in certain ways, Beam was also a victim. And that if things hadn't played out the way that they did, that he was going to try to make things right. Or he never gets the chance. But he never gets the chance to make things right. He never gets the chance. With everything exposed, he had to go home to make things right with the girlfriend. Mm -hmm. He promised Jim that he would be back. And I don't know what he would have done. In my heart of hearts, I hope that he somehow is able to break things off with the girlfriend and come out and protect Jim properly by doing whatever you can do under the Thai legal structures to make sure that what happens to Jim can't happen to him. I don't want to pretend to understand how the Thai inheritance system works. But I would hope that he would take steps to protect his partner because he doesn't. And Jim loses basically everything. Part of why Jim is probably so poor right now is everything that they had saved up was taken from him. If there is any villain in the piece, it's Beam's father. But I'm trying to see where Beam might have been coming from. And there's like a couple things in the text that really support that. When Jim goes to meet Beam's girlfriend, he thought that Beam was cheating on him with a woman. And then he realizes that no, actually, Beam was cheating on this girl with a man, with him. Yep. And that recontextualizes a lot in terms of who Beam was and what Jim meant to him, I think, for me anyway. It does 
give me a certain amount of new compassion. I'm still very angry with the character of Bean, but it does give me a certain amount of compassion. I think it's okay to be frustrated with Bean, but the question is always about life. Life is the future. Bean is the past. He made some choices that hurt people he cared about, but he can't undo them, and he has no opportunity to make it right. And the question is, what do we do now with the debris that he's left behind in his wake? Burning ourselves up, hating him and disparaging him is a disservice to all of us because we saw in the chemistry that Papang and Earth brought to the table that Jim and Beam were an intensely devoted couple to each other. But Beam is selfish, the way the other ex describes. He hurt both of them by putting them in this situation because she knew about Jim the whole time and hated Jim for it. She thought he was stealing him from her, but she realized Jim knew nothing about her. So how can she hate Jim when he's participating in something he knows nothing about? Which is why I think Jim goes out of his way later to tell Alan what he did at the funeral. Alan needs to know the full context of what's going on. Alan needs to reconcile what happened with his own life. And he can't just blame Jim, which is what he wants to do. He doesn't want to believe that the man he loved doesn't want to choose him anymore. It's easier to believe that the man you love was stolen from you. It's harder to realize that the man you love just chose something else. The way that the show is structured and layered and how the themes layer on top of each other and how scenes that don't seem connected at all end up being connected when you start pulling at a particular thread in the story. So many things come along with that thread that you didn't really expect to link up, but they actually do. That Jim Beam and the girlfriend thing does connect to the Jim when and Alan storyline, and particularly how Jim treats with Alan. Again, this radical compassion. Anyway, we're talking about Earth and Papang. To tie it back into something we were talking about earlier about how Jim and one feel like these sexually lived in characters. They don't feel like virgins. They feel like these are people who know what they're doing and they want to do it to each other. You see Jim with Beam, Earth and Papang together, and you get a little glimpse into the intimate side of their relationship. And it is fire. It is. It can't have been more than like, like 10, maybe minutes. 15 seconds of screen time. It's less than that. It's not I mean, even we a get half like two minute. minute. Like in total, we get like two minutes of them total. Yeah. We get like 15 seconds of their sexual intimacy. And I was like, whoa, whoa earth and bang. And it's barely anything. It's not explicit. It's not graphic. It just barely exists. But in that little moment, you're like, ooh, I would like to see it. You know what right? I mean? Because the show is both in and out of the BL box. It's allowed to play around with some of the conventions and you're allowed to see the characters being with other people. And it works out really, really well, again, because they've cast really good actors who make a point of having excellent chemistry with as many people as possible, I think. I want to talk about Mark. 
I always want to talk about Mark. Valid. Mark Pekin has become GMMTV's sixth man. For those yeah. of you who are not familiar with basketball terms, the sixth man in a basketball team is a player who can come off the bench and play literally any position. And Mark Pekin has become GMMTV's sixth man. There is something so specific about the way Mark moves around as Selang. When I describe Selang as that kind of screw-up cousin-slash-uncle that we all have, Mark physically embodies that so well because you know that he's screwing some shit up, but you just can't help but adore him the whole time. The scene with Mark that lives rent-free in my head right now is when Jim gives him the necklace and the look of awe and gratitude that falls over Selang when he sees that he didn't ask Jim directly, but he basically said, adopted dad, please save me when they came to Jim about the baby. And he did. Selang knew it was too big of an ask, so he didn't ask directly, but he still got it. And the way Mark has his face slacken slightly and his eyes twitch slightly as he's about to cry. It's so good. Mark is so talented. God damn it. I just compare all the characters I've seen him play recently. So this is the fourth thing that I've seen Mark play in since the first time I saw him. The first time I ever would have seen him would have been in I Promised You the Moon, where he played Tay's roommate, Mac. And then the next time I saw him was in Bad Buddy as Chang. And then I saw him in My School President as Tucson. And now as Selang here. And in the Warp Effect as Jedi. That's five roles we're talking about that we've seen him in. And those are five distinct characters in the way they move, in the way they speak. I just like, love the way he plays older brother to Li Ming in this particular show. It's so specific that you can feel the, I don't really have any parents and you kind of don't too. Stick with me, kid. We're going to make some things happen. Energy of the two of them. It's just something about Mark's physicality playing Selang in particular. He's so much more careless in this role than I've seen him be in his other roles. The way he talks, his pronunciation is looser. The way that he walks is more slap-happy. Like he lounges, he shuffles a lot. Yeah. It's just this very specific performance that he turns in as Selang. Selang is not a character with a lot of impact on the story. Selang is mostly around. That's his role in the story. His job is to allow Jim, Li Ming, and Guy Pa to express their internal mind. Mark was in every show I gave a 10 to from Thailand in the last week. Coincidence? I think not. I have to segue into talking about my MVP character for this next part. And I know we're not there yet, but I'm just going to go forward to it because I need to talk about Kautang and I need to talk about Guy Pa. Guy Pa is my MVP character for Moonlight Chicken. I actually saw this in your notes, and I've been most curious to hear this. So what is it about Guy Pa as a character that makes you think he's so critical? 
Gaipa sits slightly outside the family unit that Jim has built. Gaipa sits slightly outside of every relationship within the story. Mm-hmm. But for all of that, when he's not there, you miss him. When he's not at Jim's birthday party, his absence is noticeable to the point that they had to stick in a liquor bottle and say, hey, he couldn't come because he had to stay with his mom. This is what he sent. He's not really part of things. He sits just outside of everything that the show is doing. But for that, he still feels in some ways really central to the point that you notice that he's not there when he's not there. I felt so sad for Gaipa that the only person who seemed to love him was his mom. When he sings at the funeral for her, he sings alone. He doesn't have any other relatives. The people who are here taking care of him are the adoptive family around him that steps up to take care of him. And you can feel it in the hospital scene. When Guy Pa breaks down because his mom is gone, Jim catches him out of a sense of duty. But Selang doesn't bend down to hold Guy Pa, and neither does Li Ming. That made me so sad. This is the worst day of his life, and everyone is still weird about touching him. And I'm like, God damn, y'all. What did this boy do? And he did nothing. He's just a sweet boy, and that's sometimes not enough. Him ending up with Alan is kind of interesting for me because they're both two really diligent types who have a lot of love to give that people don't want to take care of people are calling the whole alan gaipa thing one of those pair the spares thing and i don't agree for one we just see the beginning of them being interested in each other they're not actually paired we don't know what's going to happen to them in the future that's the first part other than that actually the two characters it does make sense that they would find each other Because they're two people who have a lot of love to pour into somebody else. And they're also two people who need a lot of love poured back into them. The fact that he decides to continue to run the chicken business is huge. Because his mom was a pillar of that community. You can see it in how she was surrounded when she collapsed. You can see it in how everybody that we see turns up for her funeral. You can see it in how she was the unofficial spokesperson when they were dealing with Marina. She's the one that the Marina guys came to talk to. Clearly, she had heft in that community. For Guy Pa, as much as he never really liked the chicken business, it does not seem right to let that spirit die, which is why he's going to continue it. We haven't even gotten to Hart and Li Ming. All right, so I talked a lot about fourth in the My School President episode. Let's talk about Gemini. That boy is really good. Oh my goodness. Don't get me wrong. Gemini does a really great job in My School President. 
but his character's beats are fairly straightforward. Like he's not carrying the bulk of the drama, but he has to portray a young man who lost his hearing, taught himself sign, and then was silenced by his parents, who then falls in love with the cute boy who just shows up at his house that he accidentally screwed over. And he plays this character so convincingly. I really like that his character's name is Hart because despite everything that he's been through, he's just so genuinely pleasant in every scene he's in. He's happy to be out amongst people. He's not necessarily annoyed that he's not part of every conversation. And he's thankful to be included when he is. When they sneak out and they're hanging out in the mall and they run into Wynn, he doesn't get bothered that Li Ming has a conversation with Wynn. But after a few exchanges, Li Ming teases him in the phone and then they get Wynn to take a picture of him. I just really love everything Gemini did with this character so much. I, too, am here to praise Gemini. I praised Forth in the My School President episode. I think they're both insanely talented. I think they work together insanely well. Together, they're more than the sum of their parts, and the sum of their parts is already pretty damn amazing. Li Ming is such a central character to this story, and Forth plays him so beautifully. But I really want to come here today to praise Gemini because this is a very hard role. An extremely the hard role. The fight just... with his parents in episode five is one of Ooh. the best things I've seen. Hands down. It's the totality of the scene. It's the way he plays his initial frustration that they're yelling and not including him in the conversation. The way his mom says something... It unacceptable and he kind of missed it and then he sees Li Ming react to it demands Li Ming tell him what she said and then starts for all intents and purposes yelling at his mom and then demanding Li Ming tell her what he's saying the way he taps Li Ming's lower arm is so specific that you know that it's something that they've gotten used to it's not just about the fact that Gemini, a hearing actor, is playing hard, a deaf character. It's not just about that when I talk about the skill level that Gemini is playing at here. That is part of it. Do not get me wrong. To convey all the emotions that Gemini conveys as heart, not just without words, but without the experience of not having words available to him to use. You talk about the scene where he has the fight with his parents, and that's so good. But I want to go back a little bit before that to when we're in the hospital and he comes through the door with his arm bandaged and he looks at Li Ming. And the look that he gives Li Ming is like, well, I guess this is over now. It's just this look that instinctively knows they've been sneaking around his parents for a while and they're getting away with it because his parents have lost sight of him since they don't hear him anymore. 
So he's had a certain kind of freedom inside his relationship with Li Ming. And he knows that's over now. I really love that the dad clocks their relationship almost instantly. He does. He sees the two of them have that quick exchange. And then Li Ming starts to speak. And the dad, I think, caught up to what was going on faster than the mom. The mom was caught off guard by what Hart had to say. But I think the dad realized as soon as he saw his son collaborating with another boy right in front of him, and he couldn't follow exactly what was happening, he understood everything that had transpired. And it's why I think he is silent for that whole experience. And it's also why I think later at the funeral, he's the one who tells Hart, hey, there's your friend, go to him. Let's talk about the kiss. I know all the reasons why they did a camera angle kiss. It's probably one of the better ones that I've seen. But a camera angle kiss is always going to be awkward. I just have to go with it. It's fine. I like how it plays out in story as well. The way that it actually happens, it's almost a non-event for them. It's an event, yes, but it's so gentle. Yeah, it feels like their first kiss, but you know that it's not the first affection physically that they've shown each other that feels like a correct reading there's sort of a natural progression to their physical relationship and the kiss almost feels like a you know in some ways we've actually gone past that but do you want to maybe because that's the expression that's on their faces when Hart looks at Li Ming and quirks his eyebrow and then Li Ming responds by raising his own eyebrows and he's leaned forward and he nods. It feels almost like, oh yeah, we skipped a step. Do you want to? It does feel like their first kiss, but it doesn't feel like their first romantic intimacy. I really like that they're going to America with different goals. I think that is the healthiest thing I've ever seen. I was so worried because the show was throwing out all these hints that they were going to end up going to America together. And I was panicked. I was like, no, don't do this. No, don't do this. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. And then I've made it all better with one scene. Lee Ming is still pursuing his dream of making a go of it in the US. And Hart wants to become an engineer and is learning at institute i like that they have independent goals which means they can encourage each other so top of tops top episode i'm gonna say the funeral episode because thai funerals are specific with the multiple days of things that happen at them And I really liked the way that we saw the full gamut of that. I really liked the way that it brings the whole community together. And I really liked the way it serves as an impetus for things to come. I'm not usually a fan of moms dying in these stories. But if we're going to pursue that line, I really like the way it tied a lot of the threads together. Because there were a lot of these pots that were cooking in the show. And they needed something to happen to 
force people off of the benches that they were sitting on. Being confronted with the mortality of life and how temporary this all is, that finally forces people to say the things that need to be said to each other. And it gets us the face-washing scene into Li Ming's first beer. I wrote about this on Tumblr. It is so important to me that Li Ming had his first beer with his uncle in a conversation that's the first one they've ever had, it feels like, where Jim treats Li Ming like a person who has a say in his own life. With that olive branch finally extended, Li Ming softens so quickly. He tells his uncle how he feels. His uncle doesn't judge him for it. And you can feel the rapport that exists between them come rushing back. And that culminates at the end where they're having the dinner with Jam. And Jim teases Li Ming. He's like, yeah, he's all grown up now. He even knows how to jerk off. And the, the expression that Forth makes is the most spectacular face that he's made yet. It's simultaneously like embarrassment, surprise, mirth, because the joke was funny. You can see like he's in the middle of eating something and he smiles and his eyes light up with it. It's the most perfect expression I have ever seen. Like as soon as he made that face, I'm like, I'm going to love this boy forever. My top episode is episode five. The runner through the episode is Alan and Wen's actual final breakup. The episode starts with you seeing them in the past when they are in love, smash cutting almost to the breakdown of their relationship throughout the episode. It's just when finally realizing that he has to make a clean break and Alan fighting hell hard against that. The second reason that I love episode five is because of that fight at the end with Hart and his parents. The way that Gemini plays the frustration of everybody talking around him, but nobody talking to him, him having to ask Li Ming what the hell is going on, what are they saying, Li Ming not wanting to repeat what Hart's mother said, but knowing that in this conversation, he has to be Hart's mouth and ears. He has to relay something really ugly. He can't lie that's again, that's the integrity that he got from his uncle. Like he's not gonna lie, even if it makes him uncomfortable. Once Hart realizes what's going on, I like that he doesn't pull the notebook to tell his parents what he's upset about. Li Ming doesn't know the signs for what his mom just said. He recognizes that and he makes Li Ming write it down. And I love that it becomes sort of a record because the things that they put in the notebook, the things that they write down become a record of the relationship that is put into the notebook and he reads what his mom has said about him and at that point he's had enough the way like that. that he flings down the notebook and then rounds on his mom like oh i'm about to read you today and then he just in sign he just lets her have it 
And she feels that even though she doesn't understand what he's saying because she can't sign, she can't understand sign, she feels his rage. He is angry and it is palpable to everybody in that room whether they understand what he's saying or not. Because of the way he goes about it, he's simultaneously telling his parents off and he's standing up for Lee Ming. No one else in the room knows what he's saying except for Lee Ming. So it doesn't matter how they feel about Lee Ming. They have to look at the boy that they've been sneering at so that they can understand their own son. Coming back to how that plays into something from earlier, the fact that Hart didn't stand up for Lee Ming in the beginning, Mm -hmm. that he lied and dropped Lee Ming in it, and that's how their connection even started. And they didn't believe Lee Ming. And now they they have no choice but to believe him. Because Because he's saying it himself. He's the only one who can tell him what Hart is saying. Oh, mm-hmm. It's delicious. It is narratively <laughs> delicious. He is standing up for Lee Ming now because he didn't do it then. My top scene, the beginning of episode one, Jim and one go from strangers to lovers in one night. And that's really a sequence, but the scene in particular that I am talking about is them walking through that alleyway. Everything that happens in that alleyway is perfection. Music, production, cinematography, direction, the acting, that whole alleyway moment, my top scene of the show. My favorite shot is the first one of the diner itself. Yeah, it's such a strong opening. But my favorite scene is in episode eight, and it's always about the uncle and his nephew. It's the when did you know yourself scene. There's so much that gets put aside and healed in that conversation. It starts with the funeral scene outside of the diner, but it's completed here. I am in a better place now emotionally, but I was literally driving home from work, struggling not to cry, thinking about that scene the the day that it released, because I watched it like five in the morning, went to work, and then was just a wreck all day long thinking about it. Of all the relationships in Moonlight Chicken, the most important one is the one between Jim and Li Ming. One is helpful, but Li Ming is really the person who pushes Jim out of his comfort zone. Li Ming is the person who says to Jim, is this all you want? Are you happy? I mean, he brings Jim to tears at one point asking him, are you really happy with this life that you have? Their relationship is so important to me. It's so special. It's the center of the whole show. We joked about Luqua playing for its mom. She did a great job here, too. We didn't talk about her a lot here, but the scenes she has rebuilding her relationship with Li Ming are so important to me, too. But she has to reckon with the fact that she hasn't been a mom to him and he doesn't see her that way. I like the mall scenes in particular because she offers to get him a shoe. It's not what he wants. She gets him the shoe that he actually wants but then gives him socks that are a little bit childish and he takes them for the offering that they are. Like she's mm-hmm. trying and she's saying, I will try to listen to what you want, even if I'm struggling not to see you as a little boy anymore. 
even the picture of him that she has in her wallet, it's a picture of him much younger. In her head, he's stuck in a particular age. That's so funny because that's also how Hart's parents see him until he fights with them. In their head, he's stuck at the age that he went deaf. It's also so tasteful of her to give Lee Ming the financial aid he needs to go to America, but through Jim. Because some of the folks who have Asian families explained that the whole notion of paying your parents back is a real thing for a lot of them. And she knows that Lee Ming won't accept that level of duty to her, but he'll accept it if it comes from Jim. She has to kind of surrender. Like, I'm never going to exactly be his mom, but I can at least help take care of him. And they can build from there. That's one of the things that I like. That scene where they're sitting on the bench, she gives him the shoes and the socks and everything. There is a specific way that he looks at her. There's a little bit of longing there. There's a little bit of understanding. There's a little bit of wistfulness and sadness. I feel like he wishes that he could love her. I feel like he maybe wants to try understanding her. I feel like he sees her so clearly. And I feel like because of all that, he's going to try whatever he can to have some kind of relationship with her. And I think it's a good set of emotions to build off of from the two of them. I loved those scenes where they when they go to visit Jam and Tong and Jim refers to Wynn as his boyfriend for the first time. And you can see Wynn is floored by the experience, but then respects that things move slowly for Jim when Jam jokes about him being her brother-in-law. He's like, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I loved that. I loved, loved, loved how gentle the ending was for Jim and one. It wasn't some grandiose romantic end, but it's still a romantic ending. They're together. They're in a relationship. They're in a committed relationship but they haven't consolidated their lives. They have a label. It's a label they feel comfortable with. They're not over committing based on the feelings that they feel now. And that's something that they've both learned. They maintain a level of independence from each other while still being together and very much committed to each other. One turns down a promotion because it would mean him having to move to the next town over. I mean, it's not far, but it's still the next town over. And he's like, no, I don't need that. I'm going to pass. It is a very mature way to enter a relationship in your 30s. As an amateur cinephile, few things have touched me more than the final epilogue scene where they finally watch the film and they're able to watch it because plays on Wen's work laptop. He's like, see, I told you the movie worked. You just needed a new player. And I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and die and not go to work today. That's just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. You can still enjoy your favorite romantic movie. You just needed a new player. And then I screamed. There are so many moments like that in the show. I'll put a button on some of the themes that he was exploring really neatly. Like when he 
does his cameo for the show when Alan and Wen are having oh, their breakup scene. They're having it at a barbecue restaurant and he comes in and he asks if they want him to rekindle the fire and Wen says no. It's basically turning to the camera and being like, message! It's not subtle, but it works. This is a star-studded A-plus cast. You could pick anybody. You could throw a rock and find an MVP actor in this whole group. But I am giving it to Mixa Pop. One is a central character. He has to interact with every other character. The way that one reacts to things that are happening in the story that don't directly involve him, but he's there. Mix's acting is so detailed. When he's in the background, he is still part of the scene. You can tell when one is supposed to be like sneakily listening to what's happening or if he's just overhearing or if he's not paying attention to it at all. It's just so detailed. That scene at the funeral where he's at the back of the temple trying to send a work email. So detailed. And then Jim comes up and gives him like a little, I don't know, what is that soup or porridge or whatever it is. And the way that he eats it. It's not just about him eating it. It's about the, the specific motions that he uses and the way that he holds his mouth. He does a great job enabling all of the other scenes that he's part of. He has his most big emotional moments with first but he gave every other actor everything they needed from him in every scene he was in when is in the back of the shot staring at jim if nothing else and just that man fucking mix man he's the mvp of the show we could probably sit here for the whole night and talk moonlight chicken and not even scratch the surface of all the reasons that we loved it so we're just going to have to cut it off here. I know there's stuff that we haven't talked about, but go watch Moonlight Chicken, guys. It's on YouTube. It's eight one-hour episodes. It is a slice-of-life family drama BL, and it is perfect. Whether you're it's- young or old, there's something really meaningful to take from this. It feels like the next big thing that we've had since I told Sunset about you. In a lot of ways, it feels like Alf's response to I told Sunset about you. It definitely feels like he's trying to speak to some of the things that that brought out. What I will say the difference is, is that I told Sunset about you is a very claustrophobic story. It's very internal, where this is just so expansive. Like, this is all-encompassing. You have to think outside of yourself for this. Yeah, it's different in that regard, but it definitely feels like an extended conversation is being had between these two pieces. Folks, that was the Moonlight Chicken episode. We will be back with you next time from the conversation. That's it from me, Nini. That's it. Ben, say bye to the people. Peace.